Well, we are getting closer and closer to the end of Isaiah. And uh, tonight we're in chapter 63 and chapter 64. Chapter 63 and chapter 64. And what we have in these two chapters is two sides of the Lord's work in the world. And we've seen this in different places in Isaiah already. And that is the two sides of God's work in the world have to do with either judgment or salvation. And we see those two sides here in chapter 63 and chapter 64. In the first part of chapter 63, the prophet Isaiah looks at the Lord as a just judge and as a warrior who will come and who will bring vengeance on his enemies. And so that that shows us the judgment, the, the holiness, the righteousness side of God's character. But then in the middle of chapter 63 and then moving into chapter 64, we see the other side of the coin, which is when God judges his enemies, he also in that is rescuing his people. And so there is, there is a, a, a desire for God to show his justice in judging his enemies, but there's also a prayer for God to be faithful and to bring goodness and, and salvation to his people. So we see those two sides in, in this passage. And so that's why I've called this uh, judgment and rescue when you look at both of these chapters together. And so in the first part of chapter 63, we have a description of the judgment of the nations, the judgment of the nations. And we see the Lord identified as the judge. And he's, the way he's described is in very, very uh, warrior-like terms. And so verse 1 says, Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. A couple of things there in, in verse 1. One is the, the geographical areas that are mentioned. These are uh, long-time kind of distant relatives, you might say, of the people of Israel. Uh, Edom uh, is uh, the long-term descendants of Esau, who was Jacob's brother. Esau's descendants became the Edomites, and they always lived in relative close proximity to the land of Israel. And at different times in their history, sometimes they were friendly to each other, but it seems like most often Edom was a thorn in the side of Israel and working against them. And uh, the prophet Obadiah had some very strong words of judgment against Edom because they had basically forsaken their brother, their, their near relative. And so the Lord pronounces judgment on Edom. And so this is interesting that this views the Lord as coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained crimson, which is the picture of a warrior after the battle, right? So this is the picture of a warrior who has been triumphant in battle. And, but the judgment has already fallen and the enemies of God have been have been destroyed. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? 
It is I, says the Lord, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. And so much like a, a, a joyous procession of triumph, of victory, is the Lord marching back into Zion after defeating his enemies. And then in verse number two, it says, why are your garments red? Like those of one treading the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. So verse three gives a very definite, clear imagery to the, the crimson stained robes of verse number one. It is the robes of battle, of garments that look like someone who's been treading in the wine press, but it's actually someone who is coming back from battle and their robes stained with blood. And what's interesting is this language is picked up by the apostle John, isn't it? In the book of Revelation. And so we see the end time judgment of God on the nations described very much just like this. And it is, so here it is a picture of the Lord bringing judgment on, his, on Israel's enemies. They're near historical enemies, Edom and, and Basra. But then John picks it up and looks at it on a kind of a more global scale and shows it as really all of God's enemies and being brought under his ruling authoritative righteous hand. So the Lord is the judge and he's the warrior. And then in verses four through six, it gives us the reasons why this judgment is happening. The reasons for the judgment. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. It's interesting, isn't it? That first of all, this is the Lord's timing, isn't it? So whenever the Lord decides to judge, it is always on his terms. It's always in his ways, and it's always in his timing. And I remember you just thinking about the, the dilemma that Habakkuk was wrestling with. And in Habakkuk, he's wrestling with what he sees are injustices happening, where those who are wicked are in power. Those who are wicked are prospering, while those who are righteous are suffering. And Habakkuk is trying to wrestle with that injustice. And the idea of Habakkuk is you've got to trust God. You've got to trust him and wait on him for him to accomplish his purposes because he will in his time, but you can't rush God. He's going to unfold it according to his will. And the other thing about this verse too, is that it brings in that theme of redemption, doesn't it? So, so at the Lord's time, he will bring judgment, but it's also in conjunction with the redeeming of his people. There's that two sides of that same coin. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. Meaning, and we saw this earlier in, in verse number three as well, that the Lord is doing this alone. It's by his own power, by his own will. And he says, my own arm achieved salvation for me. In this context, that's talking about judgment. But we can see that that's true also of our salvation, the gospel, isn't it? That, that our redemption, God saving us by his grace, 
is without any help from us, isn't it? No help from us at all. It's God's own arm that is mighty to save. And his own wrath, his judging wrath, sustained him. So this is God and God alone acting and achieving his purposes. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Now, we read these verses today, and they sound, they sound harsh, don't they? they? They sound hard, and they are. These are very graphic and, and harsh language to describe God's wrath. And there are very many modern people that I think would bristle against this language and, and would point to this as saying, I, I can't worship a God like that. And that these are the kind of verses that they point to when they say, God's just angry all the time. And he's just an angry God. Or, or this is probably the kind of verse that the ancient church heretic Marcion would have pointed to and said, you've got the God of the Old Testament who is vengeful, and you've got the God of the New Testament who is gracious. And that was heresy, because it's all one God, isn't it? It's all one God. And yes, we see elements of judgment like this in the Old Testament, but we also see elements of judgment like this in the New Testament. He's the same God. He's the same righteous Lord in the Old and the New Covenants. He's also the same gracious Lord in the Old and the New Covenants. And when we see verses like this, if, if our instinct is to kind of bristle back against it and say that seems unfair, then probably we don't yet have as deep an understanding of our sinfulness as we need to. Because what this is, is describing a holy God judging human sin. And if this seems overly wrathful to us, it's because we don't have a good concept of the gap that exists between the holiness of God and our own sinfulness. And really, when you read a verse like that, that's really nothing in comparison to the eternal fires of hell, is it? So that's nothing compared to eternal condemnation. And again, modern people like to bristle against that too and, and say, uh, that's just, that seems unfair. That's wrong that God would punish somebody for all of eternity. Again, it's a misconception of the holiness of God and our sinfulness, the depths of our sinfulness against an infinite God. And so we have to, we have to believe in the trust and to see these verses for what they are as a revelation of the character of God, that he is perfectly righteous and holy and he must deal with sin because it is an offense against his righteous character. And so verses 1 through 6 is God judging the nations. And then really beginning here in verse 7 of chapter 63 and then moving all the way through chapter 64, we have the other side of it, which is the people of God crying out to God for, for him to save them, to come to their rescue and to redeem them. And so judgment versus rescue, judgment versus salvation. And so we, in verses 7 through 14, we see God's tenderness and his compassion. And that's amazing, isn't it, when you're coming right off of verse 6. Verse 6 is God trampling his enemies in the blood of his wrath. And then the very next thing we read is God is tender and compassionate. We see his loving kindness in verses 7 through 9. His loving kindness Verse 7 says, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised. According to all the Lord has done for us, yes, 
the many good things that he has done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. So, again, just want us to think about this multifaceted picture of God in this chapter. Because we do have the Lord's anger and his holiness on display, but we also see his loving kindness and his mercy on display. What is the difference between the two? Well, it's the objects that God is directing to, isn't it? So in verses 1 through 6, he is directing his character, all that he is, toward sinners. Rebellious, wicked, violent sinners who have turned their back on God, who are pagan, idolatrous, and ignoring every witness to their creator in creation and in their own consciences, living their lives, going after a reprobate mind, as Paul would say in Romans 1. And so God is dealing with them in accordance with what they deserve. And it's very much in line with God's character that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 34 when he said, I am the God who is loving and kind and slow to anger, but I'm also the God who does not leave the guilty unpunished right? That's all this chapter is. It's, it's a, in history, an expression of what Exodus 34 said about God, that he is a compassionate and tender God and forgiving God, but he's also a God who judges sin. And so in verses one through six, he's judging sin because these are wicked sinners who deserve judgment. In the rest of this passage, it's the Lord's people, isn't it? It's the Lord's people who are describing the kindness and the mercy of God. Now, here's the key. Did Israel deserve those kindnesses? They really didn't. None of us do. And if you read Isaiah and read some of the rebukes of the people of Judah and the people of Israel in Isaiah, you can see that they didn't deserve these kindnesses. And yet God gave them to them. And so God, in his infinite perfections is able to display both wrath and holiness and righteousness and justice. He's also fully in perfect harmony with who he is able to show grace and mercy and loving kindness. And it's all out of his own gracious disposition to show that kindness. Now operating in the old Testament context, the, the, the means by which a sinful people can dwell with a holy God is atoning sacrifice through animal sacrifices. But those were all provisional, weren't they? They were, they were a type. They were provisional. They were temporary. They were looking forward to something that was greater and final to come, which is the sacrifice of Christ. And, and the writer of Hebrews says that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all of those sins from the past as well. All those sins that had been kind of put on hold through animal sacrifices, Christ paid for them. So the way that God can deal like this with a sinful people and show grace to them is because of Christ. At this point, forward-looking, but from our perspective, backward-looking. This is the only way that God can deal with sinful people and show grace to them. That's what Paul writes in Romans 3, isn't it? In Romans 3.25, he says, God made him, Christ, to be a propitiation for our sins so that God can be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So it's through Christ that separates the one who receives wrath and the one who receives mercy.
It's through Christ. But it's the same holy, righteous, gracious, merciful God, isn't it? Two sides, and it depends on which side of that coin you're on, which side of the Lord's grace you're on. But it's the same Lord. And so here's Israel proclaiming the goodness of God, all the good things that he has done for Israel. And you can go back through Israel's history and think about them, going all the way back to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, and rescuing them from Egypt, and taking care of them in the wilderness, and and all of these things that God had done for them, and even staying faithful to them through the centuries, even when they weren't faithful to him. God has indeed been good to Israel. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. God rescued them. He delivered them from Egypt. And now in Isaiah, he's prophesying another deliverance from Babylon. They will come home. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. I think that's going back to the Exodus, isn't it? It's going back to the Exodus. That is the preeminent picture of redemption in the Old Testament of God rescuing his people and then walking with them through the generations. But Israel's still stubborn, aren't they? So God's a loving and kind God, a merciful God. And that's even in spite of Israel's stubbornness. In verse 10, it says, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Really what Isaiah is doing is he's kind of walking through the history of Israel here, isn't he? Going back to the Exodus, God redeemed them, brought them out, walked with them, protected them, provided for them, and then they turned on him. And they rebelled. Yes, it started with the golden calf, but it it went on from there. And generation after generation, there were examples of those who rebelled against the Lord. And so he, in confirmation, in fulfillment of his own covenant that he made with them, he said, if you sin, I will judge you. And so God had to become their enemy, in a sense, at least in the sense of chastisement, of punishment. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? So they're crying out to God. They're in oppression. They're in difficulty. They're in punishment. They're crying out to God saying, where is God? Where is this rescuing God who brought us up out of slavery and caused his Holy Spirit to dwell among them? I think that's referring to the presence of God. How much of the, the Trinity they understood at this point is hard to grasp. The, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is just in bits and pieces here and there in the Old Testament. But here's a reference to the Holy Spirit twice in this passage, and that God's Spirit was dwelling among them. But they turned on him. Then they questioned him, where is God? But then he sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown. So again, they're continuing to ask, where is this God who did these kind of great things in our past, who led them through the depths like a horse in open country? They did not stumble like cattle that go down to the plain. They were given rest by the spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. This is a prayer. God, you have rescued us before. 
we have rebelled against you. Now, God, rescue us again. Be that God that you were back then. We need your salvation. And so then Isaiah the prophet cries out for help. Isaiah's plea for help. And a part of that plea for help is a plea for the restoration of Israel. A plea for the restoration of Israel. Verse 15 says, look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. So this is Isaiah now crying out to God, praying for God to show his character, to come to the aid of his people. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. What does that mean when it says, though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us? I think it could be in a couple of senses. One sense could be that Abraham and Israel, that is Jacob, have already passed from the scene. So therefore don't know this generation. But I think maybe another way of understanding it is that the, the Israel that went into captivity is not the picture of the people of faith that Abraham and Jacob would recognize. And that's probably what is, what is meant here. But Lord, you're still our father. You are still our redeemer. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. And now we see in here a reference to the hardening of hearts. And, and Isaiah says, Lord, why are you hardening our hearts? That draws us back all the way back to his call, doesn't it? In chapter six of Isaiah, because God came to Isaiah and says, who's going to go for me? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then God says, here's the message I want you to proclaim. I want you to preach to a people who are, who are looking, ever seeing, but never understanding. Ever hearing, but never comprehending. Their hearts are going to be hard. And, and Isaiah says, how long? How long am I going to preach to a deaf, blind, hard-hearted people? And God says, until the land is laid waste. In other words, God was intentionally hardening Israel because of their long history of rebellion and unbelief, God's hardening of their hearts and the blinding of their eyes, the closing of their ears was actually judgment on them, which led to then their exile into Babylon. And now Isaiah's calling out now for God to, in essence, remove that blindness remove that hardening, remove that hardness of heart so we can see and believe and be healed and be rescued. Return for the sake of your servants. For a little while, your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. Referring to Jerusalem, right? Referring to Jerusalem and the temple. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. I think referring to the people that now possess Jerusalem, they're not your people. We're your people. We, we are the ones by covenant who should be there, but they have trampled down your city. So now 
Isaiah cries for help. And in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 64, there's a plea for God to bring judgment for the sake of the restoration of his people. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. That's huge language, isn't it? To tear apart the heavens, tear apart the skies, that the mountains would tremble. It's almost like Genesis 6 type language of the flood, of the skies breaking forth and water and then the the fountains of the great deep breaking up and water coming out and and just God judging his enemies. That's almost what Isaiah is calling for here is God to bring the full might of his power against, against the wicked enemies of his people. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Again, this, whenever you read verses like this, whether it be in the prophets or in the Psalms, what we, what we might call imprecatory Psalms that call for the destruction of enemies, a wrong way of reading those would be like personal vengeance. This is not about personal vengeance. This is about the holiness of God. This is about the glory of God. And you can see that here in verse two, make your name known to your enemies. But basically Isaiah is praying for here, the same thing that God said that he would do when he rescued his people from Egypt. I'm bringing these signs and these wonders on the people of Egypt so that they will know that I am the Lord. And Isaiah is praying for that same thing. Now God judge your enemies so that they will know who you are. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Again, referring to the past, God's mighty works of old that he had done on behalf of his people. Lord, do those again. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Again, this is consistent with the whole theology of Isaiah that that there's no one like God. All of these idols, they're nothing. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't do anything. God, throughout all history, there's been no one like you who can act on behalf of your people. And then Isaiah confesses that they're completely dependent on the Lord for any good that happens, for any rescue that comes. It's completely on the basis of the Lord's strength. Dependence on God. He says, you came to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? Isn't that a great question? God, you're on the side of those who do right, but the problem is we did wrong. How can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Many of us know this verse from Isaiah 64, and we quote it in in thinking about our own sinfulness, and, and rightly so. Because this verse shows us the depths of our sinfulness. That even when we attempt to do right things, they're still filthy before God. And... And the imagery, the, the, the Hebrew wording here is filthy rags really just doesn't quite do justice 
to what the imagery is going on here. And it is, it is a, a, a reminder that even when we attempt to do what is right, it's tainted by evil. It's tainted by false motives. It's, it's tainted by, it's mixed in with wrong. And even those good things that we do are just, they're nothing. They're garbage. They're, they're to be taken out and burned. And our sins are powerful. Our sinfulness is powerful. And it, it carries us along, sweeps us away. And we shrivel up like a leaf. I think just referring to the, the transitoriness, the, the temporariness of our lives and how quickly it fades away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Again, that's God's judging hand. That, that God gave them over to hard hearts and, and he's hidden his favor and his kindness from them to punish them for their sins. And he says, no one calls on your name. It reminds me of when Paul says, no one seeks after the Lord. No one does good. No one does what is right. Yet, you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. That is spirit-wrought, grace-wrought humility, isn't it? When you can get to the point where you can fully acknowledge before God, God, I am 100% completely yours to do with as you please. Now, that's true whether or not we recognize it or not, right? I mean, God's the potter, and we're all the clay, and God does what he wants to do with his world and with his creation, whether we recognize that or not. But this is the work of grace in a heart to humble oneself to see that and to recognize that, that God is the potter and we're the clay, and that that's his right, that's his authority, because he's our creator. And so it's just completely dependent, acknowledging the Lord and his greatness. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. This reminds me so much of the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel, and really in praying for the same thing, in praying for the restoration of Israel from exile, Daniel includes himself in the confession of sin. Even though you read Daniel about his life in the book of Daniel, and it looks like he had very little to do with the evil that brought the exile on. And yet he sees himself as a collective part of God's people. And he prays, Lord, forgive our sins. Isaiah does the same thing here. Isaiah says, Lord, we are your people. Do not remember our sins forever. So like the psalm that says, Lord, do not treat us as our sins deserve. In other words, show mercy, show leniency, and don't give us the full measure of judgment of what our sins deserve. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. And here I think he's just, he's praying in line with a, a, a humble, repentant heart, but also praying in line with God's covenants and with God, with what God has promised to the patriarchs and to Israel that he would dwell in Zion and that this would be his city. So Isaiah is praying along those lines, God, this is your city and it's a wasteland. Do something about this. 
Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? And that's where the chapter ends. It ends with a question. So it kind of just leaves us hanging there. But we know the answer, don't we? Not only from Isaiah, but from other scripture, we know that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. God does not punish us beyond measure. In fact, God withholds. He holds back. He's merciful even in judgment. And with all the evil that Israel had committed, he could have given them much longer than 70 years in exile. But he brought them home. And he listened to the prayer of Isaiah. He listened to the prayer of Daniel. And they prayed humble, repentant prayers, but also prayers that called on God to glorify his own name and honor and be faithful to his own promises. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. And in in so doing is reminding us of the kind of God that we worship. Yes, he's a holy God. He's a righteous God. But he's also a very long-suffering God, isn't he? A long-suffering God, a God who is slow to anger, a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve, a God who through Christ takes our sins and buries them in the deepest ocean and removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. This is the kind of God that we worship. And I, I love the book of Isaiah because you see the whole presentation of God's character, don't you, on display. You see many of the the aspects of God's attributes. And we saw it here in this passage, his holiness, his his wrath, but also his incredible love and grace to to sinners who don't deserve it. And that's really our story, isn't it? We don't live 700 years before Christ. We live 2,000 some years after Christ, but it's really the same story. We're sinners who don't deserve grace, but we're sinners who have received grace. And for that, we should be thankful and, and, and praise our great God.